VP Brokerage Distribution and Strategy at Legal and General America. Farron and I met many years ago. I think it was at the Milliman New York conference where both yeah. of us were invited as guest speakers, right, Farron? Yes, yeah. So today at LNG America, Farron works with an amazing team to drive growth, leveraging technology to accelerate opportunities with broker channels, but startups and many other different contenders within uh, LNG America ecosystem. Farron is an entrepreneur too. He started Jerry, a concierge service platform that used data and licensed social workers to help thousands of Americans navigate requirements and support for long-term senior care. Farron and team sold the company mid 2021, so very recently, and then Farron came into LNG America. So thank you for being with us, Farron, today. And after my little introduction, I would love to talk about your parcours because it's quite fascinating, actually. And uh, if you could dive into why you started in corporate, you know, in corporate America, corporate Canada, and then yeah. became an entrepreneur too. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, actually, I started you know, sort of right in university, co-founded a bookstore um, and a retail shop um, way back when. We did okay, um, you know, helping communities basically generate revenue and recycle goods, you know, so essentially use tech books, consignment items. Um, and that was a nightmare. It gave me an ulcer. <laughs> it was very, very stressful dealing with web ordered POSs. And this is, you know, oh, geez, more than 20 years ago uh, before platforms like Shopify or even AWS existed. So it was a, it was a nightmare dealing with inventory. Uh, so we did okay. We, we exited that business um, and, then, and then decided I needed a bit of a break and then also just corporate business training. So then I joined IBM as a consultant um, and like that, you know, again, big brand, whatever, I thought there'd be like lots of institutional learning and training and development after, you know, trying to figure out all this technology, you know, and this is back when like ASP.net and microservices were just getting started. Um, and, and then what ended up happening is my wife, well, girlfriend at the time, um, she had just completed graduate studies in um, computer animation. And she was looking for a job and she was looking at, you know, Pixar and DreamWorks and, and Lucasfilm and ILM. But the problem as Canadians, as you mentioned, is it's impossible to move to the US unless you have 10 years experience or a PhD. And she was at this conference in Los Angeles and one of the recruiters just said, hey, look, like we opened a new business, a new office. This was Lucasfilm, we opened a new office in Singapore. It's very, very easy to move to Singapore, like to immigrate. And um, George, George Lucas, the creative Star Wars, really loves hiring talent. And so when my wife, well, girlfriend at the time told me about this, I was in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. It was November, it was freezing, right? It was like minus 40 degrees Celsius, like terrible. The sun sets at like 3 p.m. and you're in darkness. And so I just Googled, um, Singapore, and then the first thing that pops up 
were just pictures of palm trees, right? And, we're, and then I Google like IBM and Dell and Microsoft, again, big corporates thinking that'd be the easiest way to go, um, realized that they had openings. And so three weeks later, we just bought one-way plane tickets and ended up moving to Singapore just on a whim. We didn't know anyone, didn't have anything lined up. And then we ended up spending, you know, four years there. And then that's where I, you know, got a job first at Aviva in project management and then product development. And then um, was leading marketing, like the chief marketing officer of the Indonesia business that we bought. Um, and I loved it, you know, like it was great. Like it's just so high energy living in Asia, you know, our businesses were growing, you know, 20% year on year, just like, and that was right after the recession, right? Like 2008, you know, the global financial crisis. Um, and so, yeah, we loved it. We're doing that. And then, and then what ended up happening is family, right? So we had some issues, like um, my mother-in-law ended up getting pancreatic cancer, um, which is, you know, terminal, right? Like that and sarcomas, like soft tissue cancers, you know, or recalcitrant cancers that haven't seen any mortality improvement in, you know, over 20, 30 years. Um, and so we had to move back pretty quickly back to Canada. And then that's where I joined. Well, in between, I joined the Boston Consulting Group. Uh, but then I decided to join a reinsurer, RGA, Reinsurance Group of America, out of Toronto, um, just to be closer to family. Like we're originally from Toronto. Um, and then, you know, how that stuff happens, right? Like life and career and just like opportunities and solving interesting puzzles. Um, and then at RGA, um, after I was leading global product development for a year. So thinking about trends across the globe and trying to bring them to our partners, the large insurance companies, right? Looking at critical illness or disability or high net worth products and underwriting. Um, Greg Woodring, our CEO and co-founder of RGA. Like, so he started RGA and grew it into this $20 billion company or $10 billion company, you know, took it all these markets over 40 years. Just asked um, six of us to think about, frankly, where does the next $10 billion of revenue come from? And then that became RGA X, moved down to St. Louis, Missouri, or Missouri. Um, and we started Nuco as employee number two, but eventually we got up to 400 people and that was right at that cusp of insure tech where it was you know we're really sure should we be investing should we try to be building organic stuff should we go direct you know it was really really exciting and spent four years there and it was great I really loved it just going deep um and then again another life change happened like we were we knew we were going to have a daughter we wanted to be closer to family and we always wanted to live in new york city so we decided to move to new york city um, and then we raised $4 million to, to start Jerry. Um, and so together with my co-founder, Ajay Rajani, who was at Tala, like a micro lending startup that has, you know, raised whatever, $200 million. Um, we decided to focus on finding non-obvious sources of data to be able to help families personalize recommendations around, um, around decisions. And that was, again, inspired by a personal story. Like, so my father, he had Alzheimer's dementia. And so just going through that process, just super confusing, super alone, super frustrating, you know, just like all this stuff that we could probably talk about that was like a nightmare to deal with. Um, and so, yeah, we did that. And then when the pandemic hit, you know, my father actually ended up catching COVID and passing away. Um, and then there was a lot of demand for this type of data. So we had hundreds of data points on 40,000 communities, you know, executive director turnover, 
um, planned ER visits per staff. And so we decided to sell the business in May to Refrain Financial. Um, and so that's where, you know, up until six months ago, and then, and then now I'm at Legal in General, again, the world's 11th largest asset manager. Uh, but in the US, it's a really nimble, nimble business. And they've invested so much in digital. Um, and one of the things I'm really passionate about is how can you find, you know, how can you help the underserved get adequate, affordable protection, right, term life? And I think you have to use technology, digital, to be able to reach them and empower brokers to do that. Um, and so, yeah, it just made sense to come on board and I'm really, really loving it. It's been three months, but there's a great team. It's a small, nimble team. And, uh, and yeah, we're the number one in terms of brokerage distribution for term life insurance. And then we have huge ambitions. So, so sorry, that was really long-winded, but uh, that's kind of the, you know, the blah, 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 I guess. It's of, you know, where I've come. I mean, yeah. what is fascinating is uh, your path, right? International path as an entrepreneur. So you've actually experienced, I would say, the ups and downs of entrepreneurship. Then you went to Singapore. So we can't, you know, taking your, your luggages and moving country. It means like me coming from France to the UK. And I did it because I just wanted a, a different life, but also to study. But that opened up. I mean, that is a profile, right? It's already determination and wanting to, to actually find new things. So fascinating to me. We also have something in common, which is IBM. I also started my career at IBM, uh, PWCC, through the acquisition of Monday, for those who remember those days. Yeah. And um, amazing experience, you know, great team. And a lot of my method and um, my structure come from those days, actually, consulting approach. I learned a lot of those things then. And then, you know, going back to entrepreneurship and going back to so that is very unusual, but it's like a zigzag, right? And giving you always so much different insight on both sides of the journey. And I met you when you were at RGAX, and I was fascinated by the team, the dynamism, and the speed of doing. Yeah. yeah, well, that was one of those things where it's almost like I've always been fascinated by problems, you know, and so what's the best way to solve the problem? Sometimes it's, you know, with a clean sheet of paper, you know, with no rules. And then sometimes it's leveraging, you know, a hundred year old brand and a $40 billion balance sheet, you know, in the case of legal in general. Um, but it's almost just like those problems. And I think of it almost as like, you know, Tarzan swinging, right? So it's like up and down or zigzag, as you say, where it's like interesting problems, you know, can be solved, whether it's within an incumbent, you know, or, you know, on your own. And sometimes, you know, it makes sense depending on the scale of the problem and, and the timing to try to just figure out. And as long as to your point, right, as long as you're learning, right, like it's almost like that, you know, the consulting approach, right, just like as long as you're rapidly learning and re reassessing your, your, your challenges, your assumptions, you're rethinking it. You know, I think that's that's the most enriching part, you know, obviously financials, economics, like they play a part, but but the learning is the most important, you know. As you would say, as an entrepreneur, learning to fail or learning to adapt fast, right? Because every lesson is to do better. Yeah, exactly. The one thing which came to mind is learning from your corporate side and your entrepreneurial side. What can you share with us around ups and downs, which have been really positive for you to shape your path? 
Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. So I'd say on the entrepreneurial side, um, again, at a venture-backed startup, you know, the default mode is dead, right? So again, venture-backed startups, even though from the outside, it might seem like $4 million is a lot of money or $50 million is a lot of money or $100 million is a lot of money, but money doesn't solve anything because fundamentally until you are Google, right? Or Apple, we are printing this monopoly cash flow. You know, that money is an investment in the future, right? So you will have to raise more capital, you know, in 12 months or 18 months. And the default mode is death, right? Because you will run out of money because you're not profitable, right? And you're not. And then also when people give you that amount of money, right? The other thing that people really don't understand is it comes with just expectations, right? Like the $4 million, again, like when we were talking to Jerry, you know, and one VC was like, oh, that's an interesting business. I could see it being successful. How big can this be? I'm like, well, there's a competitor that was acquired by private equity for a billion dollars. And they just said, that's not big enough. <laughs> like a billion dollar exit isn't large enough. Like we want to invest, even if they're only, only writing a $2 million check, they're like, we want to be in markets where the companies can do, you know, hundred, like $10 billion exits. Because again, you just work through the waterfall of like, this company is going to have to raise $100 million. If we're going to own 10% of it, you know, 10%, we want a billion dollar exit, you know, like personally, right, as a fund, not $100 million exit. So, so understanding that as the entrepreneur, right, of like, those are kind of the big expectations, you know, and then it's really just how do you stay focused and be relevant, right, and like, try to continue to hit those milestones and be laser, laser focused. Whereas I think on the other side, within a corporate, right? Um, I think the biggest thing is, to your point, how do you move fast, right? Like that agility, because the one advantage startups have is they can move ridiculously fast because there's no process, you know, or very little process. There's no ways of doing things, you know, and there's no best practices. So you're making it up as you go. So you can find, you know, that innovation and continue to exploit it, right? And then try to find distribution, right? Whereas within a corporate, you have distribution, but you might not have the innovation because you're so efficient, right? Like you have processes, you have all these like best practices, committees, procedures, meetings that kind of manage the process to be very, very efficient. It's like a you know machine or a factory, right? Like you could do one thing really, really well, but you can't really pivot. And so for the company, the big corporate, I think the key is how do you try to be nimble, right? Like how do you try to be less a, you know, conveyor belt, you know, or be a conveyor belt when necessary and be able to spin it up, but still being able to, you know, not be laser focused on the assembly line, but not miss out that, that potential lightning in the bottle and, and jump on those opportunities quickly and then deploy all the expertise you have, distribution, capital, brand, you know, and talent, you know, to be able to attack a problem. And that's where I think, again, the tech giants do phenomenally well, right? Like Amazon, Netflix, Apple, Google, where they do that internally as well as externally by buying companies. Yeah. Well, one thing you are saying, and I think you started with, with the point is it's great to get money from VC, right? It's all about financial return. So startups out there don't think that $1 billion valuation is, is good enough. Actually, it's 10, 20 billion for anyone to have a decent exit. Partly the significantly big VCs which are there. But I think the second point 
you actually highlighted is strategic returns, where actually corporate venturing, where a corporate become part of the equation, which other distribution power, they have, as you said, the method, combine that with the startup's nimbleness and chaotic way of doing things and speed can actually ha have sparkles, create sparkles, um, partly when one needs a customer to buy the product, right? Exactly, exactly. Because I mean, I think that's exactly it, right? Like within corporate venture, you have a strategic return, a lens, whereas financial VCs, it's just purely, you know, gross IRR or total value of paid in capital, like multiples, right? So, you know, again, to try to be in that top quartile of the Cambridge, I think it's like Cambridge Analytics Report or whatever, um, the benchmark, the benchmarks all funds um, and buy vintages. Whereas corporates, the benchmark is largely Wall Street, right? Unless you're a mutual or a private company, you know, Wall Street slash, you know, whatever, you know, the London Stock Exchange or Hong Kong Stock Exchange, but it is, you know, price earnings and your share price, right? So, so what you want to be able to do, you know, has to be, you know, generate a return on invested capital, right, within the company, but then still have that story that fits so that an analyst can understand it, right? Because, again, what I'm seeing, you know, particularly in insurance, right, the insurance stories, right, um, you know, aren't as interesting from equity analysts compared to growth stories, right? Like the technology growth stories where you look at some of the price earnings ratios, right, of like all these companies, they're like, you know, 40 times like earnings, et cetera. Whereas like, again, insurance companies are still valued on a book basis, right? And um, what we and are even seeing. And what we yeah. are seeing recently, probably Farron, probably the stock market and some of the IPOs we have seen in the SPACs have not done as well, right? As we expect. Exactly, 100%, right? So, and I mean, that was always the question, right? Like, as you're seeing these valuations, like, okay, that's great, but is this company really more valuable than, you know, MetLife, Aviva, whatever, right? Like, you know, a $30 billion balance sheet. Um, and then to your point, like, you know, yeah, you look at, again, more PNC companies that have launched. So I don't know that space well, but yeah, you look at IPO, you know, when they spacked whatever, two years ago, three years ago, and then their performance now. And yeah, it's definitely not keeping up, I guess, with at least the pre-IPO expectations for sure. Absolutely. So that takes me to, and you started mentioning uh, some of those. So what are the trends you are riding on? Because you are actually in the life and health sector. Uh, that's what I know you from with RGX. So what are the trends you are looking at every day to actually set shape a better future? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think of it as, again, now at legal in general, um, we just want to be able to cover the most amount of families with affordable protection, right? Most number of Americans. Like the only way to do that, right, is by using technology, right, to really digitize the process, personalize everything, right? Like personalize rates, right? Personalize the experience, the journey that the policyholder goes through, both from applying to also claiming, you know, the product, you know. I think we're, we are candidly the market leader on probably that application part, and then, but we still have so much work to do on the back end. Um, but then the other key is not just, okay, invest in technology and digitize the experience and apply machine learning and like insights and data to improve the journey. But I think you also then have to work with partners, right? Distribution, 
because fundamentally, I mean, you could try to dance around it. I'd love to be convinced otherwise, but particularly life insurance, right? Mortality coverage, you know, is, is sold. It's not bought, right? Because it's a difficult product. It's very optional. It's very, very opaque. And it's morbid, right? Like no one wants to talk about death, right? Like my wife, like, I've, you know, <laughs> we've been through so much together, like so much, like parents dying, all this stuff. And we don't talk about death, right? Because like there's an aversion to it, even though we have, you know, one kid and one on the way. And I live and breathe this all the time. When I bring up, hey, maybe we should get more life insurance or you should get life insurance. Like, I don't want to think about it, right? And so that's when it has to be sold. And again, who knows? Like, but I think the best way to sell it, you know, particularly complex, like life insurance products, you know, that are long duration, right? Like 10 years, 20 years, whatever, is through independent distribution, right? Like, you know, whether that's via phone, email, chat, face-to-face, whatever, but, you know, reaching the customer how they want to be met, right? Like, I think like omni-channel, that just makes sense because like, Again, 300 million people in the US, let's call it whatever, 2 billion, 3 billion people in that middle class, right, across the globe, you know, that require protection, you know, saying that they're all going to use one thing, you know, like, I don't think there's a magic bullet, right? Because even you look at like iPhones, right, like, they're dominant, but, you know, Android is still whatever, like, what, 80% of smartphones or something, maybe not the value, but 80% of usage, right? So how do you try to like, empowered distribution right like independent distribution to be able to to reach customers to make sure they're rewarded right and independent distribution might be banks it might be agents it might be you know embedded platforms you know like mortgage companies or something like that but but yeah i think those are kind of the biggest trends you know that that i'm focused on and then the the third one and final one is how do we just like maybe change the narrative again the biggest insight around life insurance is it's really depressing, but everyone's aligned to live longer, right? Like the insurance company wants you to live longer, you know, like you want to live longer. So maybe, and again, like I know in the UK, like prudential and vitality are doing that well, but it's like, how do you change that narrative to be around like living in wellness, right? And and being a partner, right? A subscription to like unlocking benefits, you know? And and does that actually move the needle, right? Like result in bending the mortality curve, right? Like keeping people alive longer. I think that's the holy grail. Again, maybe we'll get there in 10 years or something, but, but that's one of the things that personally is on my radar as well. It's interesting, right? Because when we think about life insurance, um, you know, it's about death, but we have seen amazing propositions such as you life, uh, you know, using that that life, that longevity, that health and wellness angle to actually convince the Gen Zs and younger populations to actually care for their uh, their behavior and therefore their lives. And so therefore behave better and and therefore therefore being happier as well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because I mean, that's it too, right? It's like people like, protection, you know, the insurance industry or life insurance industry kind of thinks it's like, oh, you had this terrible, like, yeah, when my dad died, right, in April last year, you know, he had a very small whole of life policy. Um, And it was like, when we filed the claim, it's like, oh, $50,000 or something like that. Again, like minimal, like, you know, whatever. Um, And, you know, so, and my mom gave, like, paid for the funeral with it, and then also gave it to, you know, my sister and I, and I'm like, well, we don't really need it, 
and we don't want the money, right? Like from the insurance perspective, it's like, I don't want the money. I just want my dad, you know? So it's like, you know, whereas I think in the insurance, it's like, okay, cool. Like you paid us money. We give you money. We're done. Whereas it's like, no, it's not that, right? It's all this other stuff. Like, how do you manage grief? How do you manage counseling? How do you like get on with your life as necessary? And how do you make sure like the legacy is honored, not just through cash, you know, but you know, the outcomes, the desires that those people have. And I think that's the opportunity that, again, that's the, that's the blue ocean, right? Like that's the white space, that's the green field, insert metaphor or whatever, but that's the opportunity that, you know, we could be going after, you know, as an industry, because there's probably not just one company that can do that. You know? Absolutely. That's where I think a lot of innovation is coming, where we start really understanding the drivers of people, their behavior, and so therefore replacing money with people, things people care for, such as some of the items you, you mentioned, you know, managing grief, so maybe mental health advice or consulting, uh, the process of, uh, you know, burial as well, a wheel you know, early stage will design, which I think the startup environment and ecosystem have been quite uh, challenging in readapting old way of doing insurance into new ways. You mentioned a keyword, and I want to type into that word, which is embedded. As you know, this is a keyword of 2021, probably it will yeah. be a keyword of 2022. So what does embedded life mean, life insurance? So you know, what in your world do you see being embedded? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, again, it's not quite there yet. And it's, and it is a keyword or it's a new word, you know, but on the life side, I mean, travel insurance has been sold. Like if you buy plane tickets on United right now, or I'm sure Southwest or whatever, you're always offered travel insurance, right? Again, that will typically cover just, you know, loss, delays, baggage, et cetera. But some of the products, you know, have life coverage. I know you can buy it at like Tokyo Narita. Again, I haven't been to Tokyo since this whole thing started, but, you know, I know for a fact, like you can go to ATMs and buy life insurance and travel insurance at an ATM at Narita Departures. Um, like I've seen that, you know, multiple times whenever I flew through there. And so that's an example. I would say, again, like a 1.0 example of embedded, right? Where it's like, you have this event, you know, can you be covered for a limited duration? And then it's almost bundled in, you know, to the coverage where you're not really having to worry about like going through very extensive questions or an onerous application. And I think the key is the consumer, like the applicant is still like mentally primed, right? Like they're in the headspace for wanting to purchase coverage, right? They're like, oh yeah, it makes sense, right? Like, like I bought some, um, like, again, it's not life insurance, but I bought a, you know, sporting event tickets, they were like a thousand bucks. And with Omicron and stuff, I was like, yeah, I will pay $60 for cancellation insurance so that, you know, if if we can't go, you know, we'll be able to claim back that thousand dollars, you know, for our, our party of four. And so I think that's kind of the key with embedded, right? And then where can you take that? You know, and again, like in the US, there was a bunch of startups that were looking at it, like Spot and stuff like that, of just like, micro insurance coverages or buddy i think where it's like accident insurance tied to ski resorts or trips and stuff like that and i think that's cool right like i think that's very very interesting you know the the challenge at least in the u.s particularly on the mortality side has been there's a non-contestability period of two years right so essentially you know all these onerous underwriting requirements you know are used because if 
you discover that there's fraud, you know, on whatever month, you know, two years and one month afterwards, um, you still have to pay the claim, right? So even if like, it's like, hey, Sabine, you said you weren't a, an alcoholic private pilot who scuba dives and then you like, you know, we find photos of your Instagram and that's the cause of death. But on year three, you'd still have to pay the claim, at least in the US. And so that's kind of the challenge, particularly around like long duration. I go back to again, 10 year, 20 year, 30 year contracts, right? And so, so that's kind of the challenge. And again, it's such non-proportional risk, right? Like for a million dollars of life insurance coverage in the US and the US has the cheapest rates around the world, right? Um, for a million dollars of life insurance coverage, it probably costs you maybe 30 bucks a month, you know, depending on your age and your amount. So it's like pretty cheap. So as an insurance company, it's like, you're only making like whatever, 600, $700. The advisor isn't really even making that much, you know, in the first year you're making 600 bucks. And if you do claim after three years, someone has to pay a million dollars, right? <laughs> Which like, yeah. you know, and that's kind of the challenge, like the non-proportional risk. And then there's some inside baseball rubber regs, you know, that, that make, I think long duration embedded, like, I don't know, like, I'd be interested to see how that evolves, but I think the short-term stuff is really, really exciting, you know, and yeah, companies like my friend uh, Rodan is at Spot, I think, and uh, doing really interesting stuff there. Yeah, you know, we um, we reviewed Spot, so we, we do a lot of R&D labs. And um, over three, four years ago, we started Spot uh, as part of our work for one of our uh, partners. And, you know, we we really impact that business model. And so that allows, you know, companies to start looking at partners for my my goal is I always say to insurers, why build when you can partner? That's my motto. But also, you know, when you start actually seeing uh, business model alignment, you can actually sometimes take time. As we know, things take time in insurance. But at least if you actually put those companies on the radar, you can always find opportunity for partnership and investment, at least during a, a specific period of time. And that's yeah, the- yeah. 100%. You know, because, and that's what I said too. I think, again, I remember a competitor of ours now like in general, but one of my clients when I was at RGA, a large mutual company, they used to have like a furniture department, right? Where they used to make furniture for the company, right? So it's just like, you know, obviously that disappeared, I guess, whatever in the eighties or something or seventies or sixties, who knows? But like, you know, no insurance company today, no company would make like furniture, like unless you're WeWork, right? Where it's like crucial to your mission and to your point. And that's the idea where it's like partnering, right? Like, it's like, how do you partner with best of breed, you know, really understand what you're good at, what your unique insight is, what your network effects are, whether it's around data, distribution, customer service, you know, and then be able to deploy that or partner with others to, to deploy that and bring that to, to customers. So, you know, one thing you just mentioned is um, that network effect. And, you know, my my brain, uh, I could see a big brand in the United States called Caterpillar, which actually moved their business model from, you know, selling drills to renting drills. And what I love with that business model, it's also becoming or it has become a sustainable business model where actually it's as a service, the drill get broken, they are being replaced and all and, and all and so on. How do you see sustainability and creating a circular economy working in the life sector? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, oh, geez, 
need another coffee to think through it. But um, yeah, so I'd say it's like, so to try to create a circular economy, right? So like the obvious stuff, right? Like the, the stuff that I think every insurance company, legal and general included, is doing is life insurance companies have huge balance sheets, right? That we manage assets for our policyholders. So again, going back to that million dollars, right? We have to, you know, it's not an IOU. It's a, it's a reserve, like it's the future benefit, right? That's how we think about it. So you have to manage that relatively conservatively to make sure that if a claim does come up, you know, that million dollar death claim, we have that, right? We don't have to go to the market. We don't have to like, we have that available, right? Those are reserves. So in, in essence, it's not our money. We're just managing it for policyholders, right? At the highest level. I think that's the biggest opportunity, right? Then the lowest hanging fruit, you know, towards sustainability and, and legal in general, that's kind of a steward. That's why I joined them, right? Because it's like, it's all about inclusive capitalism. So not just carbon neutral, but reinvesting in communities, both in the UK as well as, as in the US and deploying that balance sheet, right? Like $60 billion, $30 billion, whatever, huge amounts of sums. But can you do that in a positive way that just leaves the world being better, right? Like your local community better. I think that's like, you know, the lowest hanging fruit. I'm proud that I work at Legal in General. That's like leading the way there. Um, and then when you get into like the next order impacts, right? Of like, okay, you look at investments and then you can then look at our spend, right? Like as a company, again, 30% of the premium is roughly expenses, right? A lot of that might be salary, but some of them might that also be the partners that we work with, right? How we choose to travel, how do we be more efficient? How do we be, you know, more positive to the environment? I think that's another thing, you know, that we can invest in. And then finally, again, with life contracts, right? There's always a question of like, yeah, how can you, to your point, like make it better? You know, the example of recycling that drill is is so beautiful because it's like, it's a tangible item and you're depreciating the CapEx. Whereas in life insurance, you know, the core product is essentially a contract, right? So I, I don't know if that really applies, but, you know, just brainstorming, it's like that contract, again, has other tangential benefits or riders, right? Going full circle into wellness, right? Like, Maybe it's offering in, helping people live longer, like discounts to gyms, memberships again. These are all things that can help, you know, that again, if you're able to do something really big and spread the cost or depreciate the cost across others, you know, that might be really, really impactful. And so bringing, you know, a million customers and new benefit might really spur adoption and just like push that agenda forward in terms of sustainability. And so that's again, like stuff that's like, may more like wave three, like emerging that, you know, I don't know what the answer is. I don't even know if like, there's like really concrete case examples out there, but that's the opportunity, you know, that everyone, you know, could probably be thinking about. And that is, you know, the trillion dollar question, right? Yeah. And one I think will be an interesting one to investigate further uh, in the year in the year to come. You know, I was um, I've been observing what LNG has been doing in in the UK. You know, net zero homes you are building, creating jobs in the uh, north of England. I was fortunate to sit, uh, you know, beside one of your colleagues at one of the award ceremony, recent award ceremony, and we talked the whole night about it. And um, it was fascinating to see the passion and the decision-making process around your work, around creating jobs, creating financial resilience and using data to make this happen. 
in the future. So congratulations, Farn. Yeah, yeah, no, it's one of the reasons, again, like legal in general, like it's like, you know, particularly in the US, you know, our partners still call us banner life for William Penn. But, you know, the legal in general group is doing phenomenal work in the UK, you know, the home market, and then also investing very, very heavily in the US. And it's like, and I think that's like the poster child of like, what can be like a responsible steward and we're, you know, stock listed, you know, like we're a publicly traded company. So you don't have to do that within a mutual or fraternal, which I think is kind of the default, at least in the US or, you know, to recent extent, the UK, where it's like the, the mutuals or the fraternals, we're trying to be these like public benefits. But I think you can be responsible, you know, and realize that, you know, can you smartly use data and your leverage to, to impact the greater good and create a more inclusive future, you know, for everybody. Try to, I want to try three words with you. So first word, industrialization. Second, democratization. And third, monetization. What do those words mean to you as we move into a future tech world? Yeah, interesting. So I think industrialization, I think industrialization will come to AI, right? So when I think of industrialization, it's like, how do you make it very, very easy to deploy, you know, again, manufacturing, right? like China, you know, making shoes and like plastic widgets. I think the same thing's going to happen at AI, robotic process automation, looking at data. And so that will happen to AI and that will, you know, leapfrog all industries, right? Like apply to everybody, not just the hard tech, like the big tech companies, but that will hit insurance, that will hit healthcare, that will hit everything, right? Everything. Um, democratization, yeah, it's interesting. I think again, like decentralized currencies or cryptocurrencies um, or distributed you know, blockchains, right? Are really gonna play a crucial role in democratization in the future, just because we're seeing it, right? Like, Trust is at all times low, at least in the US, and I'm sure probably to the lesser extent the UK, but in governance, like in governments, in public institutions, even companies, right? Like, you know, four years ago was Facebook, you know, viewed as what they're doing, right? So, so I think true democratization comes when we have powers and tools that aren't really beholden to large, large entities, right? Whether that's Facebook or government or things like that. And so I think when we have powerful tools, right? Like Web 3.0 tools that really give democratic access and power, you know, back to individuals, you know, that's when we really, really unleash it. And then monetization. Yeah, I mean, geez, like what's going on right now with like, who knows, right? Like, so again, like, I think of, again, my broad brush, like career, right? Like it's like, you know, had a startup pre-2008 and then the financial crisis hit as we were in Singapore. And you see all these ripples, right? Where it's like after, G after the global financial crisis in 2008, you know, the response is let's just print more money to avoid a, a global depression, right? I think that worked, but it inflated asset prices. And then we we're at a 0% interest rate environment for essentially two decades. Right. And at least in the US, when you look at some of the, the competitive responses of the insurance companies as well as private equity companies, right? Whether that's Athene, whether it's KKR, whether it's Blackstone, whether it's, you know, Prudential pulling in and out or principal, you know, again, these are all public examples. I think that's the challenge when 
people thought you were going to be in a zero interest rate, you weren't going to be in a zero interest rate environment where it might only last five years. But in essence, we were there for two decades, right? Like 2008 to 2018, right? Starting to exit it. And then the challenge is then annuity markets fall apart, investment returns fall apart, like all these like long-term contracts fall apart. And then the second thing now after coronavirus, right, like the pandemic, you know, I remember $778 billion in the U.S. was a large stimulus, um, whereas now it's like $2 trillion is just like table stakes, right? Like, and so again, monetization, like, again, from an entrepreneur, like how you make money, subscription, all that stuff. But I think from a bigger macro perspective, right? Like, what does the value of money mean, right? Because money is like, it's a debt obligation, right? Like it's an IOU. But the the rapid inflation that we're seeing, and again, people say that it's temporary or whatever, but like 6%, like we haven't seen that, right? Like in our lifetimes, right? Like in the 1980s. And so... So yeah, I don't know, like it'll be really, really interesting to see, right? Like how to ride that out. You know, we're in an era of super abundant capital. How does that impact, you know, people's subscriptions, right? Like $30 a month, even a million dollars debt coverage, right? Like that might be the equivalent of, you know, my dad's $50,000 policy, you know, 10 years from now, we're like, oh, a million dollars, like $50,000 is a lot of money. Don't get me wrong, but it's like, it's not set up for life, you know? No, it's not, as we know. And uh, when you look at your retirement and you plan for retirement today, you probably, I would say, would do well or at least be able to pay yourself, you know, your rent and your, your home and be able to do a little bit of travel. You need to probably triple, quadruple, quintuple this number to feel like you may live in, up to 90, maybe. And now we probably need to plan to 100, 120. So yes, 1 million is not enough. So Farron... Yeah. What would be your last word of wisdom for our change makers? You know, what would you like them to remember from our chat today? Yeah, I'd say last words, just keep an open mind, right? Like no one can predict the future, you know, and you have to earn it, right? So keep an open mind and you have to earn it. You have to earn it by doing the work, you know? doing the hard yards, you know, everyone's doing it. It's a struggle, you know, it is, whether you're at a startup, whether you're at a corporate, you know, there's highs and lows, entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship is eating glass, you know, and so, but you just got to do that struggle, you know, and, and keep an open mind, right? Like always rethink opportunities. I love that. Own your future. So here's Farron Blanc. Uh, Farron is at Legal and General America. And if you want to find Farron, you just need to find Farron on LinkedIn, actually. I love, you got the short name. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the advantages. Advantage of the unique name, you know. <laughs> so thank you for your time today, Farron. Thank you. No, thank you. If you like this podcast, subscribe now, share with your friends. And if you enjoyed it, please give it a five-star review. Also, if you want to cover any specific subject with me, contact me on Instagram under Sabine VDL Officials or LinkedIn under Sabine Van der Linden. Thank you.